Are we on? Um, is there anyone praying before the Bible reading, or does anyone know that? Who's reading the Bible this week? So I'll, I'll pray. I'll pray at the beginning, beginning of the sermon. That's fine. <coughs> ben Rowland? Oh, Emma Rowland, great. I know, I just, that, that's not sitting well, my lunch, that's all right. Okay. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that your word is living and active, and we pray now for your spirit to speak powerfully through your word, quiet in our hearts and mind that we may hear your voice and submit to your will, and we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. George Whitfield has been described as the greatest evangelist since the first century. He lived in the 1700s, was converted at Oxford University with John Wesley. He was known for his, his booming voice. Without amplification, he could speak to up to 80,000 people and could be heard 800 metres away. But his heart for the lost was as big as his booming voice. He had this massive heart to see people believe and come to Christ. He, drew, he preached over 18 thousand sermons on village greens in the open air on street corners he caused revivals in the UK and in America he was such a gifted anointed evangelist uh, a story is told where he went to preach the gospel at Harvard University and every student and every professor there that day gave their life to Christ he was he was shunned by the church most Anglican clergy hated him why because his message was so confronting and so simple he just preached this you must be born again you must be born again he preached that same sermon over 3,000 times one critic came to him and said Mr Whitfield why do you preach the same sermon all the time and Whitfield looked at this man very solemnly and said because you sir must be born again that was his passion, his drive, his belief that everyone is lost without Christ. What people need most in life is new life in Jesus. He dies aged 55. It's estimated he'd reached about a half a million lost souls for Christ. Such a simple message, you must be born again. But those are the words that Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 7. You must be born again. Again, that's our big idea for today. You must be born again. Well, Jesus talked to a man called Nicodemus. But the you in verse 7 of John chapter 3 is plural. Jesus is saying, everyone must be born again. 
And that word must, it's a necessity, it's essential, it's non-negotiable. Every man, every woman, every child of every nation must be born again. Now, I know that some Christians are embarrassed by that phrase, born again. We're happy to be called Christian, but the born again Christian, it sounds a bit too sincere, a bit too intense. But the Bible's not embarrassed by that phrase, born again. And I believe that that's the message our city, our, our nation, and our world needs to hear. Not a message about good works or good behavior or being nice or, or being religious, but a message about the new life that you can have in Christ. Remember that story of the army chaplain who was preaching on John 3 one Sunday, and he preached this, you must be born again. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about getting a new life. After the sermon, a man from the front row went to speak to the preacher and said this, I've been ordained for 30 years. I'm the archdeacon of this diocese. But today God found me out. I'm still trusting my own efforts, my own abilities, my own knowledge, my good works and my religion, and I need to be born again. And that day the archdeacon was born again and gave his life to Christ. Let me ask you right up front, have you been born again? Have you been born again? When was that? How was that? We're in John chapter 3, and over the next few weeks, we're going to meet these people who meet Jesus, the immoral social outcast Samaritan woman of chapter 4, the the rich, important, successful Gentile in chapter 4, the desperate, paralyzed man in chapter 5, all these different people with different needs, but the same basic need of needing to be born again. And today we meet a good man, an upright man, a moral man, a religious man. His name is Nicodemus, and he needs to be born again. Verse 1, there's a, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who is a member of the Jewish ruling council. So this man is an Orthodox Jew, a Bible scholar. He is so religious, always at the temple, always praying, a good nice, upright man. He's a, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's a leader. He's like the senior pastor of a church. And verse 2 tells us he, he comes to Jesus at night and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus is a, is a curious man. He, he's seen the signs. He's intrigued by Jesus. He's a confused man because he still thinks that Jesus is just a prophet like Moses, that God is with him, but he's not God. But actually, Nicodemus is quite a condescending man. That's the tone of verse 2. He said to Jesus, Jesus, I'm quite impressed by you. Well done. It's a bit like the HSC student complimenting Einstein on his mathematical ability. Well done, you. Good job. And it shed lights on verse 2, where it says that he came to Jesus at night. At night, because John is not talking about the time of day and he's not just saying he didn't want to be seen. That phrase, night, in John's gospel, it means moral darkness and spiritual darkness. So Nicodemus is a religious man, but he's in darkness. He needs to see the light. Jesus speaks in verse 3. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again or born from above. The kingdom of God, the rule of God, the the relationship with God, you can't get that unless you're born again. 
it's fascinating. The, the, the phrase born again is quite trendy in marketing circles these days. You've got the born again iPad, the born again V-dub. And what they're saying, this is revamped. It's been the latest, the best thing. But by that phrase, born again, Jesus is not talking about revamping your life or making a few changes or changing your behavior. It's not patching up holes or pulling up your socks or trying harder or being a better person. It's like after an earthquake in a city, you don't walk around the city with gaffer tape. You need to rebuild a new start, a new city. It's not turning over a new leaf, but getting a new life. So Nicodemus, he may have been a Pharisee, but that will not help him. He may be religious, that won't help him. He may be sincere, that won't help him. Because no matter how good you are, or how nice you are, how religious you are, how sincere you are, you cannot have a relationship with God unless you are born again. And that phrase shattered our pride. Because if Nicodemus, a great religious man with great Bible knowledge and well-respected and successful, if he cannot enter the kingdom without being born again, then nor can you and nor can me. Maybe the most caring, loving, kindest person, but whoever you are, whatever you've done, you must be born again. Let me um, highlight three wonderful truths about being born again. First one's this. It's through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It's through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural, spiritual work that's beyond our human control. You cannot convert anybody. That's the Spirit's job. Look at verse 5. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. He's saying flesh gives birth to flesh. So you have a natural birth and you have an earthly life, but you need more than an earthly life. You need an eternal life. So when you're born, you become a child of a parent. When you're born again, you become a child of God. You need the Spirit to give you new birth. This is a a spiritual thing. You need to be born of both water and the Spirit in verse 5. I don't think he's talking in verse 5 about water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think he's talking about water that cleanses you from your impurity and the spirit who transforms your hard heart. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from your impurities and I'll give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. So to be born of the water and the spirit is to have a new heart, a transformed heart, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. So the hardest people to hear this message is good people, successful people, and religious people. Because good people think that they are good enough for God. I'll be okay. And successful people think, well, I, I can do something. I can achieve something. I can pay my way. And religious people think, well, I know all about God, but they have no relationship with God. Whitfield was hated because he once told a bishop that two Christian poor shoe cobblers knew more about Jesus than the entire clergy of the Diocese of Bristol. He says, being born again is not about your theology or your church rituals. It's about the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And do you know that the the Spirit chases people, the Spirit prods people like, like a stone in the shoe. It's the Spirit who convicts people to open their eyes to Jesus. It's the Spirit who illuminates truth about Jesus so you get it and understand it. It's the Spirit who changes us. This is all his work, not yours. 
And this truth is so liberating and so humbling. I love verse 8. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is of everyone born of the Spirit. He says you can't control the wind. You can't determine where the wind blows. You, you just see the impact of the wind. Like I said a few months ago, it's a bit like those cyclones in North Queensland. You can't predict where it's going to hit the land. You can't predict where it's going to hit. It's like you've got two houses next to each other. One gets completely smashed by the wind. The other is untouched. I can preach the same sermon and two people are sitting there in floods of tears and they're being born again and 10 people are completely untouched, completely unmoved. And that's quite liberating, you know. It's not my job to convert you. That's the Spirit's job. My job is to preach and to pray, to preach and to pray. It's liberating your personal evangelism. You're not called to convert people. That's the Spirit's job. You just preach and pray, preach and pray. It's humbling though, isn't it? Because I am born again because the Spirit chose to work in me. So when I started to think about spiritual things, that was the Spirit at work. When I started to read the Bible, that was the Spirit at work. I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to become a believer. That was the Spirit at work. So I'm born again through the convicting work of the Spirit. Number two, I'm born again through the crucified death of the Son. Through the crucified death of the Son of God. Nicodemus doesn't get it. He said in verse 9, how can this be? He's saying, Jesus, surely I'm good enough, I'm kind enough, I'm religious enough. I love Jesus' response in verse 10. He says, you're Israel's teacher. You don't understand these things? He says, you're supposed to be the most eminent theologian, but you don't understand simple things like grace. And then he explains it down in verse 13. Look at verse 13 says this. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus claiming that when he was born at Bethlehem, he came from heaven. So he can talk about heavenly things because heaven was his home. And the theme of heaven, the message of heaven, is about an old wooden cross. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Jesus talks about that bizarre instance in, in Numbers chapter 21. Remember that where God's people are in the wilderness and they're on the way to the promised land, but they're rejecting God and ignoring God. So God sends a bunch of snakes. And if you get bitten by a snake, then you will die. And the people cry out for a saviour. And God says to Moses, put a bronze snake onto a pole. That's all you have to do, put a bronze snake onto, onto a pole and all those who look up to the bronze snake will live, they will not die. And it's so simple, embarrassingly simple. Look to the snake and you will live. Now to make the connection, verse 14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus, too, will be lifted up on a pole, on a cross, he must be lifted up. The cross was essential. It had to happen. There is no other way to be born again. So when Jesus cried, it is finished, God was saying, that's enough. That's all you have to do. Look to Jesus. Verse 15, everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. That is the promise. So simple. Look to Jesus and you will live. Look to Jesus and you will not perish. 
Look to Jesus, you receive forgiveness and grace and a new life. It's got nothing to do with your good behavior, your good works or your religion and everything to do with what Jesus did at Calvary. You wonder why the cross is a symbol of Christianity and why churches are, are built in the shape of a cross. It's the most simple yet the most costly sacrifice. Look to the Son of God and you'll be born again. So you're born again through the convicting work of the Spirit, through the crucified death of the Son, and you're born again through the crazy love of the Father. The crazy love of the Father. Verse 16 is the most famous verse in history, isn't it? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. When you see that word world, don't think earth, don't think cosmos, that word, that word world means a messed up world, messed up people. He's not talking about the bigness of the world, but the badness of the world. God loves people who turn their back on him. God loves people who disobey him and ignore him, and we all do that. Do you get it? God's love was so massive. So incredible, so crazy. God so loved this world that he gave his only son, that he gave his son. It was love that sent Jesus from heaven to Bethlehem. It was love that sent Jesus to the cross at Calvary. It was the love that sent Jesus to the cradle and then to the cross. Why? Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came not to judge us and not to point out all the faults. We often think he came to do that. He didn't come to do that. We don't need him to do that. We condemn ourselves. We're self-condemned. Our actions, our thoughts, our words were already condemned. But in love, God sent Jesus to save us. Why? Because he loves us. I said again, he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. Oh, 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 how he loves us. This lavish, extravagant, extraordinary, heavenly, fatherly love. It's like a, a man who's trying to convince his wife that he really, really loves her. And she's saying, show me you love me, show me you love me, show me you love me. He's like, I will show you I love you. And so he steps out in front of a bus shouting, I love you, I love you, I love you. Now, it's a nice gesture, but it's a bit stupid because he's dead. But if his wife is in the middle of the road with a bus coming hurtling towards her and the husband jumps out into the road and pushes her to safety and dies in his place, her place, shouting, I love you, I love you. Now that is true love, a love that is willing to sacrifice yourself for somebody else. That is true, extravagant, costly, crazy kind of love. And that's what God has done for us. He gave his one and only son. And when you grasp that, you, you live in this world knowing that you are loved by God and cherished by God. And I hope you've got that. I've been on my knees this week begging God that you would grasp just how much God loves you. So you must be born again through the convicting work of the Spirit, through the crucified death of the Son, and through the crazy love of the Father. So, I could preach this message every single week. It's the most important message you need to hear. But when Jesus preached, there was just two responses. When Whitfield preached, there was two responses. When I preach today, there'll be two responses, and it really is black and white. 
There is no gray here, my friends. Either you believe or you don't believe. Either you trust this, you believe in this, or you reject it. And the repeated word in this passage is that word believe. You either believe and have eternal life or you refuse to believe and the consequences are horrific. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned. That's the promise. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they haven't believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Or verse 36 is more black and white. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That's pretty clear. If you don't believe, God's wrath remains on us, and we are heading for hell. It's a bit like the passengers on the Titanic. They, they knew the ship was sinking, yet they refused to get into the lifeboats. They just stood on deck singing arrogantly, just plummeting to their deaths. Same with people today. People refuse to believe. Why do people refuse to believe? Why do people refuse to believe this simple gospel that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, died for your sins, and is offering you forgiveness and love and grace? It's so beautiful. Why do people refuse to believe it? People say to me, oh, it's because the church is full of hypocrites, or it's because I need more proof, intellectual proof, or I've got apologetic questions like, what about other religions? That may all be true. But Jesus is rude enough to question those excuses. He says then in verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. He says people don't like the light because people love what they're doing. People prefer to live life without God. They like ignoring God. They don't want to change. And people realize to be born again will require change. That's the real reason. And I find that so desperately, desperately sad. People keep rejecting Jesus. It makes me weep because most of my family and a lot of my friends still keep on saying no to Jesus. But again, it's the Spirit's work. I'm just called to preach, to pray, to live differently, to love them well. Believing is really, really simple. It's stunning. Verse 16 tells us those who believe will not perish be saved from hell. Verse 18 tells us that we are not condemned if you believe. And verse 36 tells us whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We've been rescued. Believing is just so simple. You just say yes to Jesus. Say yes, I believe. And when you do that, you are born again. Schoolboy drowns aged 16. That was a newspaper headline that shocked me. I wanted to say that this boy drowned at the beach that day. Now, I don't imagine that he woke up that morning thinking about God and death and eternity, but by the end of the day, he was in the presence of his maker. Now, if I had been that boy aged 16, I would have perished. Because age 16, I did not know Jesus. Age 16, I had my life planned out. I was going to do my A-levels, HSC equivalent go to university, travel the world, be in a boy band, get married young, have kids, travel the world, retire early. But I gave no thought to Jesus, to God, to eternity and to death. And I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God chased me 
and opened my eyes and convicted me of my sin and showed me Jesus and showed me just how much God loves me. So Nicodemus was born again eventually. I've been born again. So the question for you is quite simple. Have you been born again? Do you believe? Do you trust? Do you say yes, that Jesus died for me and God loves me? Do you believe? We're going to end this sermon by standing and saying together the Nicene Creed. It's a creed that Christians have said throughout the centuries, affirming what we really believe. So join with me. We believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.